the fourth message of our series in First Thessalonians. And so uh, we uh, read our text uh, last week, so we'll get right into um, the message. We're talking about three genuine indicators that your election is sure. And we introduced this subject matter last week, and we talked a little bit about uh, election and, and what exactly that is, and, and we're just kind of scratching the surface at this point, and we'll get into it a little deeper. Uh, but we, we left you off with a question when Paul says there, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And so we asked the question, how did Paul know that they were chosen? Wouldn't you love to know that? Uh, That's a wonderful thing. So many times when we're out sharing our faith with people, people may pray a prayer and, and you know, commit their lives somehow and maybe we don't know them so we're removed from them for a period of time only to meet up with them years later and they're not even walking with the Lord anymore. <laughs> and it's kind of frustrating. It can be um, demoralizing really for evangelism to, to happen that way. But I think we have to understand that this is God's work that he does in people's hearts. And um, when you introduce the doctrine of election, it's a hard doctrine to grapple with. It's a hard one to make sense of out of logically in our own mind. And so we have to leave it in the hands of God. And some people say, well, why even risk upsetting people over it? Just skip over it. Well, it's part of Scripture. It's too big of a part of Scripture to skip over. And we went into that last week. But we introduced this message and we said you can know that you're elect if God has powerfully changed your life through your reception of the gospel. You can know that for sure. Um, Jesus said that he, you know, he, he doesn't want us to guess about these things. He came that we might know right, that we have eternal life. And so as a result of preaching the gospel here in this town of Thessalonica... Paul led many people to Christ, and he was there just for a matter of weeks, and uh, then he had to move on. Remember, they drove him out of Thessalonica. He taught for three Sabbaths in the synagogue, and they got tired of hearing what he was saying, because it wasn't what they wanted to hear, and they chased him out, and they had to leave prematurely. But he had a church there. He established a church. There was enough people for a church. And so they they started this little church. And here you have this brand new group of little baby Christians who just came to Christ maybe out of Judaism or maybe out of uh, paganism. It was a mix of Jews and Gentiles there. And they they were living in a very difficult culture. It would be kind of living in the Bay Area, you might say. I mean, it was a seaport Thessalonica, very well-known, very well-traveled, a lot of sailors there. And if you know anything about sailors, for the most part, their language isn't the best a lot of times, and they uh, don't always uh, conduct themselves in a way that would be definitely maybe not honorable to the Lord, let alone their uniform. But here, okay, um, in Thessalonica, it was not a good place for a new Christian to be, but that's exactly where they found themselves, a brand-new group of baby believers in a very difficult culture. Listen, without they had a church, but they had no leadership. Think about it. They're brand new Christians. 
And Paul said, okay, here's your church. Oops, sorry, we got to go. <laughs> and, and Paul was driven out. And so here, as Paul leaves, you can only imagine what he's thinking. It's probably the same things we think when we lead someone to the Lord, when someone comes to Christ, and, and we, 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 what do we do? We pray for them. We, we wonder how they're doing. Maybe we text them. We reach out to them, even though we can't see them face to face. And we want to know, how's it going? You know, are you plugged into a church? Are you reading the word? Are you doing? Well, the same thing Paul had for this group of people in this very hostile world in which they lived. And they were only weeks old in their faith in Christ. And they were living in an extremely hostile environment. And here... Paul, because he's apart from them probably for a couple months, he was only there probably a couple months at best. Um, he taught for three Sundays in the synagogue, but he was probably there longer than that because it gives indication that he had a job. He worked a little bit, and people were able to take up offerings and send them to him. So he was there more than three weeks. We're not really sure how long he was there, but he was there long enough to care for them for a couple months at least. But then he, had to, he was driven out of the city. And so when he, he left, he got to think and wonder how they're doing. And so he says, Timothy, you know what? I've been praying. Maybe you should go back and check on our brothers in Thessalonica just to make sure they're doing okay. And so Timothy heads back there, and he comes back to Paul finally, and he says, you know what? I'm here to tell you they're doing great. Their faith is strong in spite of all the opposition and the persecution. The whole report is good about the Thessalonican church. And it was really a good church. Maybe some say the best church of all the churches that, that Paul founded. And, and so he wrote this epistle to encourage them. To let them know that, hey, even though you're living in this sinful, wicked, wretched, immoral society, you're doing well in your faith. And it's remarkable what God has done in you as a people. And that's why he could say, without a doubt, I know that God has chosen you. And we talked about this last week. He introduces it there, and he brings up three things. A working faith, a laboring love, and an enduring hope. He said, this is why I know that you are saved, that you're born again, that you've been transformed by the power of Christ. And we talked introduced this last week, and we talked about the working faith being in the past, speaking of our conversion to Christ. The laboring love is something we do every day in our Christian walk. And then thirdly, the hope is something that is, is future. It's, it's a perseverance in our faith. And so Paul uses those three, faith, hope, and love, faith, love, and hope, uh, a lot of times in his letters. But today we come to the first one, the working faith, a working faith. And he says, constantly bearing in mind there in verse 3, your, your work of faith. Now, I don't know about you, but when I came to Christ, I came out of the Catholic Church. And so I came out of a church that was steeped in works. I mean, you constantly had to do stuff. You had to go to Mass. You had to go to confession before you went to Mass. You had to go to catechism before you went to confession. You know, you, you, you just had a sordid number of things that you were supposed to do in order to earn God's favor. And a lot of times people don't understand that Catholicism is very much a religion of works. 
It's a religion of works. So when I came to Christ, I was relieved to know that I didn't have to work anymore. I didn't have to wonder about my salvation if it depended solely on me. Did I go to enough masses? Did I go to enough confessions? Did I take enough hosts and all this other stuff they have going on? Did I give enough, feed the poor, and do, do all these things? Because that's the religion that they believe in. That's not the religion of the Bible. Now, people find that offensive. Well, how could you say that about Catholics? They're, they're wonderful Christians. Well, I would say Catholics, by the world standards, are wonderful Christians for the most part. But by God's standards, they're sinners like everybody else, just like you and I are. And we need to understand that, you know what, without the work of Christ on the cross, we're left in our sin. And so when he says here, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, a changed life is evidenced by work stemming from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. J. Vernon McGee says this, he says, now the work of faith, quote, is a strange expression, (laughs) Because we are told that by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Yet here, he says constantly bearing in mind, the the reason I know you guys are saved, you're elect, is because of your work of faith. What does Paul mean by that? What does Paul mean by that? Well, the construction of the original language really points that word back to the work that comes from faith. It's not that you earn your faith by your works. That's not what he's saying. He's saying your works are an outflow of your faith. One thing that you can take to the bank, a true saving faith, a faith that is truly legitimate, Someone who is legitimately born again. Someone who is legitimately saved. Someone who is legitimately elect, you could say. Is always revealed and it's always manifested in how we live our lives. It's an outflow into our lives. It's impossible to say, oh, I've been saved. But you know what? It didn't change me at all. There's something wrong with that kind of faith. And so we have to be clear You know, a true and deep and saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is always, it always did in the Bible, whenever people encountered Christ, they were changed or they weren't saved. I used to tell young people, no Jesus, no change, no change, no Jesus. I don't care what religious gymnastics you go through in your daily life. If you don't see a change in your life, you have to stop and say, wait a minute, is there, has there really been transformation here? Has God really saved me? A faith that works means that a, it's a faith that produces something. A faith that produces something out of that, some kind of work out of that faith. And so the elect are marked by holy, righteous deeds, and the Bible calls them their faith works. Their faith works. Now the word work here, ergon in the original, it refers to the deed done, to the action, to the achievement. 
And so Paul is saying, look, I know you're elect because your faith produces something. I can look at your life and say, wow, here's, here's Steve Converse before faith in Christ, and here is Steve Converse after faith in Christ. There is a difference. You should be able to say that about yourself. If there's no difference, if there's no change, then I would have to ask you to go back and say, wait a minute, what happened back here? Maybe you did walk an aisle, or you raised a hand, or you professed Christ, but if there's no change in your life whatsoever, then you would have to question your own salvation. And that brings up the whole topic of eternal security, doesn't it? There's a lot of Christians in the church today that are always wondering, well, how can I be sure that I'm saved? I'm doubting my salvation. My answer is always the same. Well, that's not necessarily a bad thing. (laughs) I'd rather doubt my salvation and, and allow God to bring me to true repentance than never doubt it and end up in hell one day thinking I was a believer when I wasn't. (laughs) See, no one is more clear in the scriptures, no one is more just forceful than the Apostle Paul that faith without works saves. It's faith we're saved by. We're not saved by our works. Paul never, anywhere, tolerates a work salvation. No one is stronger on the fact that it is faith alone, apart from any human work, that we are saved. That's what the scriptures teach. That's what Paul teaches. Uh, He says it in in Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God in Romans 3 has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, salvation is not a result of any human work. There's nothing you can do in and of yourselves to be saved. It doesn't matter how much you do. It doesn't matter how long you do it. It doesn't matter how right you do it. It's never, ever going to be enough. If that's all you're trusting in, that's never going to be enough to have your sins forgiven. He continues there in verse 22. He says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. That's why we're all in the same boat, because our works don't matter. It doesn't matter if, if you're, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer or the Pope. You're in the same boat. You're a sinner before a holy God. He says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, Romans 3 says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, a satisfactory offering. Then he says, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he continues in verse 25, he has passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then Paul asked the question in Romans 3, 27. He says, what becomes of our boasting? (laughs) 
What right do we have to boast? He says, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. The law of faith. Now we hold that the one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, Paul continues. Verse 29, or is God the God of the Jews only? In other words, if you're a Gentile, you can't do all the things the Jews do. Go into the temple and do all that. You don't have to do that. So what Paul's saying is, well, wait a minute. If you were saved by works, if you're saved by all the religious things that the Jews do, then only the Jews are the ones that are going to be saved. And you say, wait a minute. Is that, is that true? Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, Paul answers. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. See, we're not saying, oh, you take the law of God and you throw it out. That's, that's Old Testament. There's some churches that teach that. The law of God is God's word. You don't throw it out. It, it, it keeps reminding you constantly. Are you doing the right thing? Are you doing the right thing? So Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's no place for works in the saving action of God. The only work that is considered is what? The work of Christ on the cross. The work of Christ on the cross. Romans 4.4 says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. In other words, if you did something to earn your salvation, it wouldn't be God's gift of grace. I mean, think about it this way. Does your boss, at the end of the year at Christmas time, or maybe on your birthday, does he get your paycheck and does he wrap it up in a nice little box and come to you and go, here, Merry Christmas. And you're thinking, wow, my boss bought me a gift for Christmas. And you open up the gift and it's your paycheck. What would you think? You would think, hey, wait a minute. This isn't a gift. I worked hard. I worked 40, 80 hours for this. We can't treat salvation that way. Paul says there's no place for works. If there's a place for works, then there's no place for God's grace. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified by works, no, by faith. By faith. And he goes on and on making the point through the book of Romans. And we've been through that ad nauseum. But it's good reminder. That's why the cross is so important. Because upon the cross of Christ, that's when the work of Christ was accomplished. It was completed. We don't have to continue to work. No one is more clearer than Paul, more forceful than Paul, that salvation is purely by grace through faith, without any consideration for your works. But at the same time, at the same time, 
Paul is very clear and very adamant that saving faith always produces works. He's not saying you're saved by your works. He's saying if you're saying you're saved, what? You should have works. God should be doing something in your life. Sometimes when I hear people's testimony, they talk about years ago, yeah, years ago when I was a teenager and I went to this camp and I came to Christ and and that's how I know I'm saved. And I always go, what has God done for you lately? I mean, how many years ago was that? 20, 30, 40 years? Has God done anything since that time? Are you living out a, a thriving, growing relationship with your Lord and Savior each and every day? Is he, are you in the process of sanctification? Is he changing you and molding you and shaping you to become more like your, his son? And is he, is he constantly working on those sins that are yet in your life? So Paul makes it equally clear that where you have saving faith, you have righteous works. You have works that please God. Romans chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, he says, He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. What's he saying? He's, he's going to give eternal life to the people who do good. Well, why are they going to do good? Because they're saved. They don't earn their salvation. They verify their salvation. They verify that the recipients of the gospel, they verify here in Paul's mind that they are elect because of the works that he sees lived out in their lives. Romans 13, 3, Paul says, Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. And this is an analogy here of authority. But there's a spiritual principle here that, that kind of applies to God as well. If you do good in that context, in Romans 13, he's saying, Hey, you know, don't pat yourself on the back. You know, I mean, if you're doing good, then you should receive approval from the authorities. And if you don't do good, guess what? You won't receive approval. You'll receive judgment. That's a principle on the supernatural level as well. When you do good in your Christian life, guess what? You please God. God is pleased with it. See, sometimes people take the doctrine of election and they say, oh, okay, well, I guess if I'm elect and I'm saved, then I don't have to do anything else. Nothing. I can just sit back in my my easy boy, my lazy boy of, of grace and just relax. I don't have to lift a finger. I don't have to be involved in church. I don't even have to go to church. I don't even have to pray because if if election is true and God knows everything and he's got it all planned out, then, you know, what's the use? What is that? That's that's a theology that doesn't come from God. It comes from Satan. It's, It's a theology of fatalism. And that's not taught in the scriptures. So the fact of good deeds in the life of a believer is needed to verify their salvation. To verify their salvation. So we have to turn to to James, because I know some of you are thinking this in your head. Well, wait a minute. What does James say about this? So turn over to the book of James. James chapter 2. 
In James chapter 2, look at what he says in verse 17. Well, look at verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Have you ever run into somebody like that? I'm a Christian. Really? That's interesting. Why do you say it that way? Well, I just noticed every Sunday I see your car in your, in your driveway. You don't seem to go anywhere. Where do you fellowship at? Oh, I don't go to church. You don't go to church, but you're a Christian? That seems kind of opposite. So he says, hey, you know what? If, if you say you have faith, but you don't have works... Look at the question he asks. This is a great question. Can that faith save him? Verse verse, uh, uh, 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? You know, it's like seeing a homeless person on the street and saying, oh, you know, here, let me pray for you. God bless you, you know, I pray that he'll provide, and then you just leave. You're not really helping them, right? What do they need? They need food. They need a blanket. They need something to put on their feet. Now, this isn't a mandate to go out and try to save the world through social activity. It's not saying that because Jesus, on the other hand, said, hey, you know what? The poor you're always going to have with you. Did he not? So he continues here. Look at what he says in verse 16. And one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled. What is that? Verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So what is James saying? James is saying, you know what? If you're saying you have faith, but you don't have, God isn't doing anything in you. You might have faith, but it's a dead faith. It's a faith that's not alive. There's a lot of people in the world today that have faith. They have faith in all kinds of things. But it's a faith that's not going to save them because it's not in the correct object. Their object of their faith is usually their good works or their own self. They're thinking, you know, when you ask somebody, hey, do you think you're, you know, good enough to go, oh, I'm a good person. Yeah, I'm a good person. Yeah, yeah. Really? You really think you're a good person? Why do you think that? Why really don't do anything wrong? I mean, it takes about two seconds to figure out they're not a good person. Have you ever told a lie? Oh, yeah, who hasn't done that? Well, then you're a liar. How dare you call me a liar? Well, what do you call somebody that tells lies? Have you ever taken anything irrespective of its value that wasn't yours? Well, yeah, I guess when I was little, I used to take some things from the drugstore or steal some gum or something. Well, what do you call somebody that takes things that isn't theirs? A taker? No, a thief. <laughs> I mean, and you go, go down that, that, that road with people all day long, and they begin to realize, wait a minute, by God's standard, guess what? I'm not a good person. I'm in a world of hurt. I need something that will change this. And it's not the faith that I have now because there's nothing going on in my life spiritually. It's a dead faith. But look at verse 18, James 2, 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. 
Is that possible? Is it possible for you to come up to me and say, look, I'm a Christian. What possibly could I see? Do I have to put on special glasses and and, and all of a sudden, oh yeah, yeah, I see Jesus in your heart there. He's in there. I know you're a Christian now. I mean, you wish it was that easy, right? But it's not. It's impossible to know. Speaking of other people. And that's why he says there, the only way that you can show someone your faith is to show them that God is changed you, that he is working in you, and that there are good works flowing out of your life. Your saving faith produces change. He continues, and he says, and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. What's he doing? He's commending, oh, that's, that's a good thing. How many times have you been witnessing to somebody, well, oh, I believe in God. Great. I love using this verse with him. You know who else believes in God? Satan. The demons. That's what he says. Even the demons believe and they shudder. So it's very important that we understand that, you know what? Satan has a very orthodox theology. He, He understands what's going on. As deluded as he is. Verse 20. Do you want to be... Shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James is simply saying what what distinguishes counterfeit faith, a dead faith, from a real faith, an alive faith, is that the live living faith produces authentic works in the life. There's something that you can look at and say, wow, what is different about this person? What has changed in my life? And we, we like to quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's not your own doing, but it's a gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. We know that very well, but we, we stop there. And we should continue reading because verse 10, Ephesians 2, verse 10, says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. And guess what? It says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Don't you love it that God is such a sufficient God that he provides for our every need? Not just on the cross for our sins, but even after that. After we're born again, after we're saved, he gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the word. He gives us the church. And he also gives us good works that are already before us, ready ready for the picking. We just have to get 
busy doing them. God prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. When he says walk in them, it's, it's a daily thing. It's like breathing. It's, it just flows out of your life. It's not something that you're, oh man, I know I've got to work for my salvation. So I'm, no. God has changed your heart. He's changed your desires in such a transformative way that all of a sudden you're wanting to do things you've never wanted to do before. Before I was a Christian, I would never, ever, ever, ever consider talking in front of a group of people. Ever. Never. A lot of you are sitting there going, yeah, we can tell. But that's all right. Hey, I do the best I can, you know. And I know it's not all fine-tuned, but I, I, I do it by faith. See, faith is by nature, this, the outflow of it is works. Works that are inevitable. And it shows us the presence of salvation. Faith always manifests itself in obedience to God. Faith always does. Now, we're not perfect. We're going to fail. We're going to sin. We're going to live at times disobediently before God. But you know what? We know in our heart our disposition is to obey God. And so when we do fail, when we do sin, what happens? The Spirit convicts us. And what do we do? We have to go to God and confess our sin. Not for necessary forgiveness. We're already forgiven in Christ. But just declaring that God, thank you for forgiving this sin. The Father, in John 15, his desire is that we bear much fruit. And if you're truly saved, at least you'll have some fruit. Some fruit. True faith is evidenced by some kind of production of good works or fruit in the life of a believer. It's always that way. Paul and James are not at odds. Paul was battling the the, the Judaizers who basically taught that you must keep the, the Jewish law to be saved. That's who Paul was addressing. And so he emphasized that we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. James was confronting those who claimed to have faith, but they didn't have any good works. There was no change in their life. So what did he do? He emphasized genuine saving faith produces good works. But both men agree, and the scriptures agree, that we are saved by faith and faith alone. But works are an outgrowth of our faith. Those works include all kinds of things. Serving one another, serving Christ, giving comfort to someone in need, spending time listening to somebody, praying. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that these works can be evidenced in your life. It also includes sharing our faith. That's a work that Christ includes, commands us to do. See, a, a frequent opposition to the doctrine of election is that God has determined who will be saved, and as a result of that, then they will be saved. 
So there's no need for us to do anything. We can just sit on our hands the rest of our Christian lives here on earth. We don't have to share the gospel. If God's going to save them, he's going to save them. But that's not what the scriptures teach. Remember, God ordains the means along with the end. We talked a little bit about this last Wednesday night. Yes, he has ordained whom will be saved. But he does it through our proclaiming of the gospel. That's what he calls us to do. In 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul says this, For this reason I endure all things, for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with its eternal glory. God has his elect, but Paul had to suffer. Paul had to preach so that they would obtain salvation. And as we come before our communion table today, I want to remind you that we're not taking of these elements as a work. This, this doesn't secure our salvation by partaking of the, the, the bread and the juice. That's just what they are. They're just juice and bread. And so I, I want to read just to prepare our hearts for our communion time out of the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 53, because it reminds us of God's plan in our salvation. It reminds us what God planned through Christ. Verse 1, it says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, speaking of Christ prophetically, and no beauty that we should desire him. It says in verse 3, he was despised, he was rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with much grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows, yet we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. For he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Listen to those words, wounded, crushed. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Not speaking of physical healing here, speaking of something so much greater, spiritual healing. Verse 6 All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. The New Testament verifies this. This is exactly what happened. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave 
with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there is no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was, look at this, the will of the Lord to crush him. Around Easter time, people sometimes think, oh, poor Jesus, he died on a cross. It was God's will for him to die on that cross. God put him on that cross. There was a purpose behind it. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You know, if it wasn't for the work of Christ on the cross, we would have nothing to put our faith in. He alone deserves the glory, as we sang earlier. He alone is the one that we thank. We don't pat ourselves on the head and on the back and say, wow, great job there, Steve. You saved yourself. No. Salvation is a work of God. That's why Paul in Thessalonians starts out thanking God for the Thessalonians. He doesn't thank them for their good behavior. He doesn't thank them for their wonderful Christian lives. He thanks God. We have to keep our perspective correct And when we come to faith in Christ, there's only one person that deserves the glory, and that's God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to be reminded of that continually because somehow our flesh just wants to work its way in there. And we just want to say, yeah, yeah, you're doing good. You're doing great. You're something to be praised, aren't you? And it feeds that, that pride and that, that spiritual ego. And we have to stop and we have to say, wait a minute, if it wasn't for Christ, I would have absolutely nothing before a holy God. I would have to receive my just reward, eternal hell forever outside of Christ. If you're here this morning and you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, I would just ask you, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? He's the only one. He's the only one who invites you to come freely. Freely. Most of the other world religions, probably all of them actually, they're all condition-based. Well, you got to do this, you got to do that. You gotta... No, Jesus says, you know what? Come as you are. Just come to me. I just ask that you, re- you, you acknowledge your sin before me. I'll pay it. I've already done it. It's done. Put your faith in Christ. Look to Christ and Christ alone. Not to a man, not to a church, not to an organization, to Christ alone. He alone is able to save your soul. Father, we thank you for this word this morning. Lord, we pray that as we prepare our hearts for communion time, Lord, that you would minister your grace to us.
And Lord, even as we make a procession up here to take the elements and take them back to our seat and we'll partake together, Father, we pray that you would continually remind us of that work of faith that you've done in our lives that affected change, that we were a new person. We were, we were taken out of darkness and brought into light. We were old, but now we're new. It's just a dynamic transformation that only you can do through the power of Christ. Father, it's not something in and of ourselves. We simply are responding to your call upon our hearts and our lives. And Father, if there's any here today, I pray that they would just cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you've never trusted Christ, now's the time. It doesn't take a rocket science scientist to look at the world and see that things are coming unraveled rather quickly. I'm not trying to be a, a fearful preacher, but you know what? There is such a thing as the fear of hell. Forget about the world. What's going to happen when this world is over? What will be the eternal state of your own soul? Are you trusting in Christ? Have you cried out to him for forgiveness of your sins? Are you guaranteed that you'd be in his presence? If you breathed your last breath right now, I pray that's the case. If not, it can be. He came to let us know that we can know that we can have eternal life when our faith is in Christ and Christ alone. And as believers, I just pray that we would examine our own hearts as we come to this table. This communion table is not a means of grace for us. It's not a way to access God or anything like that. It's just a a remembrance for those who've trusted in Christ to to come and partake of this juice and this, this cracker and this juice that it reminds us of the extreme sacrifice that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, made on that cross. But along with that, we remember that, yes, he died and he went to the grave. But three days later, he rose victorious over sin and death. And so we proclaim victory here today through Christ. And we pray that we wouldn't partake of this communion table in a way that would be dishonoring to the Lord as believers. If there's something in our lives that need to be addressed, I pray that we would do that even now. That we would go before God and make things right. So Father, we pray you'd bless our communion time. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.